Victor Garber. Garber. Victor Young, Garber. hot. Young, so I mean, hot. yeah. Oh, God. Victor Garber. Yeah. yeah. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel and Musical Theater and our continuing exploration of the works of Stephen Sondheim today, a day we, I think, Nathan and I have both been looking forward to landing on for some time. We're going to talk about Sweeney Todd and we have a special guest. Nathan, would you introduce our guest today? We do. We're uh, we're sort of expanding our, our uh, cast of characters. Stephen Sondheim was a great collaborator, and Peter and I are uh, taking a taking a page from his book and inviting some of our favorite people to come talk with us about Sondheim. And no one more more beloved of me than our uh, executive producer. We just decided this is her title. Arwen Myers is our uh, communications and marketing director at Trinity Cathedral. This podcast is actually Arwen's idea. So those of you who love it have Arwen to thank. Those of you who hate it have Arwen to blame. Uh, she was the one who said, I think the stuff that you and Peter are doing on musicals could make a really interesting podcast. We dreamed this up. And she is the one who keeps us on track, organized, releases episodes, does all the PR. She's, uh, she's a tour de force and also an incredible soprano. So we're asking Arwen on both because uh, she knows musicals, she knows church. Also, she knows, uh, she knows Sweeney Todd. Arwen, you said to me, just about every note you have memorized. And what I want to know is how does a sweet, innocent young girl from Georgia get wrapped up in the blood and the gore of Sweeney Todd? Well, thank you, Nathan. Um, that is a really great question. And I actually, um, I was thinking about this when I saw Sweeney Todd pop up on the list. I was like, oh, my God. And, and you guys are being very kind. But I actually did um, just boss my way onto this by way of a really bossy email. Um, so thank you. But I was thinking about it, and Sweeney Todd was actually the third musical that I ever got like super obsessed with. I'm not wow. a very well-rounded uh, person. I'm somebody who likes to like latch onto something and listen to or watch it or read it a thousand billion times. So I don't really know the sort of spread of repertoire as well as I should. But my three musicals were... A funny thing happened on the way to the forum wow. when I was in fourth grade after I saw it with my grandmother on Broadway. Oh, 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 super great. oh weird. Oh, weird. Yeah, really weird. Really weird. So I went there and then West Side Story, uh, obviously a, mm. a classic choice, and then Sweeney Todd. And I don't know how I got the like Sondheim bug without even knowing who Sondheim was. And I don't know why, you know, two of these were just tremendously inappropriate for a child to be obsessed with. But <laughs> Sweeney Todd was the flavor of my late high school. I think I listened to it, maybe not daily, but at least two or three times a week for about two years. So wow. Sweeney Todd and I are, we're close. It's in there. Yeah. The, the original Broadway cast recording, the one with Andrew oh, Lawrence yeah. Is that? Yeah, oh, that is yeah. your... And Len Carew. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, Len Carew. Mm. Yeah. Victor, Victor Garber. Garber. Victor Young, Garber. hot. Young, so I mean, hot. yeah. Oh, God. Victor Garber. Yeah. 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 I saw Victor Garber. Uh, he is. I saw Victor Garber as Jesus in the Toronto production of Godspell, um, with Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin. Um, oh, it was really. It was just. I mean, oh. we had no idea. We had no idea yeah. that that was who it was. But yeah, Victor dog. Garber as a young, hot uh, Toby in, in this. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> so the history, just to maybe. For any of our listeners who may not be acquainted with Sweeney Todd, and we wonder why you're listening if you aren't, but just to give a little bit of background, it's his 10th 
uh, Sondheim's 10th Broadway musical, in a number of ways, one of the most successful eight Tony Awards, uh, best musical, best score, best direction, best actress, the great Angela Lansbury, actor uh, Len Carew. And because I'm Canadian, we have to say that he is a Canadian and cut his theatrical teeth at the Stratford Festival. Um, we always have to claim our Canadians, don't we? I've, I've learned this from you, Canadians. Peter. <laughs> there was, there I, was. I, I start watching now. I'm always looking like, oh, who's Canadian in this cast? Because I know Peter's going to want to, we're going to, we're going to want to make a thing of that. So I, you've taught me well. I now watch for Canadians everywhere I go. Well, you know, there was apparently, incidentally, uh, a, a, a game show on a Texas radio station a few years ago called uh, Dead or Canadian. And uh, the <laughs> conceit of the show was to give a name. And then some of us expanded it to gay, uh, Dead Gay or Canadian. And uh, Raymond Burr, uh, Perry Mason, Ironside, yeah. gets the trifecta, Dead Gay and Canadian. Mm. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the Holy Trinity. Uh, the yeah, Holy indeed. Trinity. Um, so hugely successful, directed by Hal Prince again. Opened March 1st, uh, 1979. Uh, 557 performances closed about a year later. Audience has had a tough time with it. Um, yeah, not what commercially is this successful. Thing? Not commercially successful, but revived endlessly uh, on Broadway in London and played at the New York City Opera, the Houston Grand Opera, Vancouver Opera. Uh, lots of opera companies do this even though Sondheim and Prince and others argue that it is not an opera, it's a musical, but whatever. And, and the backstory is that when Sondheim was in London in 1973 for the Gypsy Revival with Angela Lansbury, I never knew that Angela Lansbury played Mama Rose. Yeah, uh, that was kind of her, I think it was a little bit of, you know, she had been in Anyone Can Whistle, not particularly successfully. No. I think... Mama Rose was kind of her like, oh, I, that's, I think she talks about like, that's how I learned how to be a musical actor, right? Like, that's how I learned to sing. That was where I really stepped into uh, being, you know, being a musical theater actor as opposed to a film actress, which is what she had been doing for most of her career before that. Yeah. So there was a, an adaptation of the Sweeney Todd story, which was uh, Penny Dreadful was is the kind of character uh, 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 genre of literature that it comes out of these little horror uh, stories uh, and the story Jack really the was Ripper about, yeah, yeah kind of underbelly of Victorian society yeah mass murders they're sort of the um, the true crime you know mm-hmm. nowadays it's on Netflix Netflix is basically doing penny dreadfuls for the 21st century <laughs> right like the whole kind of true crime murder obsession thing like that goes all the way back to Victorian England these little penny mm-hmm. dreadfuls that you could pick up and I mean they were titillating they were often tinged with a weird kind of eroticism right a lot of prostitutes mm-hmm. show up in penny dreadfuls um so yeah that we might talk about that the the, mm-hmm. the connection of sex and death and women's <laughs> bodies and brutality and yeah. maybe, maybe we don't really want to go there but anyway keep talking about penny dreadful sorry and the story was really just about the barber and the, the meat pie baker and he slit he slit customers' throats, and Mrs. Lovett got them and ground their bodies up and made meat pies out of them, uh, the worst pies in England, obviously. But it was a uh, a guy named Christopher Bond, a dramatist, who did a backstory to explain why this would happen. So it was kind of filling in a penny dreadful, kind of in the way that Tony Kushner filled in a backstory for. Spielberg's uh, film of West Side Story, 
gave Tony a bit of a, a, a an arc and uh, Maria and 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 the whole context of the conflict in West Side Story. And it was this that really got Sondheim, except what he wanted to make was just a horror movie. And Hal Prince, and reading about this, I thought, Hal Prince seems to be the guy who goes into creators of musical theater and they show him their work and he says, what's this about? I have no idea what this, he did it with Fiddler, <laughs> right? He did it with Funny Thing um, and he did it with Sweeney Todd. And he wanted to do a kind of whole look at the Industrial Revolution and capitalism and class conflict and that sort of stuff. Anyway, that's the that's the bones of the thing way back uh, in my view. And then I'm uh, I'm uh, happy to to step si aside. But in my view, this is about the cycle of violence and how it just expands and expands and expands and infects everybody within that that Sweeney seeking revenge coming back from Australia, a penal colony, because a judge has lusted after his wife. He's been sent away. He comes back bound and determined to get revenge and revenge he gets and revenge gets him. So, uh, but that's, you guys have other takes yeah. on it. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's right. I mean, that's certainly what Sondheim talks about, right? In some ways, it's a morality tale, the, the destructive power of, of revenge. Although I think it's more complicated than that. And our, actually, on our one, I'm interested in your thoughts on this too. But maybe before we kind of jump into the theologic, um, that's moving us. In some ways, finish the thought, Nathan. I want to suggest <laughs> that Sweeney Todd is maybe Sondheim's most religious musical. I think it's 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 playing with a lot of theological ideas. I don't think Sondheim is uh, he's not particularly interested in in the ethics or theology. He's interested in telling a story about people, right? Uh, Hal Prince is interested in telling a story about society, but those two forces combined, I think, make for a really, actually, very I wouldn't say Christian, but a show that is really delving into questions of. I mean, sacred violence and society in some really interesting ways. But that, that gets set up for us musically in some really significant ways. And Arwen, I, I, I want to ask you, because you're in some ways, you're the best uh, trained music person on this. I, I think you're the only one of us who's actually studied music theory. Talk with us a little bit about what Sondheim's doing musically, because um, it's different than other, even other Sondheim stuff that comes before this. I mean, this is almost opera. And I'm actually, I'm curious on your take. Like, how do you categorize Sweeney Todd as a, as a singer who has, has quite a bit of experience in opera, operetta, uh, in that kind of genre? How do you understand Sweeney Todd musically? Well, it's a good question. I think it's um, it's a lot of things. And I think it depends in a certain sense on who you're looking at. I think that, you know, if you look at Mrs. Levitt, her whole, the vocality of Mrs. Levitt is much more musical theater than almost anybody else on the stage. But if you look at uh, Sweeney, if you look at Joanna, if you, even the judge, I mean, these are very classically written parts. These are, are written for people with a wide range that isn't often found on the musical theater stage. But that's kind of Sondheim too, right? I mean, he you look at a little night music. Um, even yeah, look at at pieces of Into the Woods. I mean, he he has this tendency to say like, "I see you, musical theater singer. Now do this instead. I believe you can do more." <laughs> it's kind of a like, it's just his his approach to singing. But I think that Sweeney is is uniquely operatic. That said, I don't really like it very much when musical uh, theater is produced or performed by operatic singers. But that's just me. Um, it's just a personal <laughs> I tend to preference. Agree, yeah. 
But I mean, that's that's not to say that there aren't people who can very successfully sing this kind of music from both traditions, um, especially Sondheim and especially Sweeney, I think. I mean, you listen to Len Carew and he I mean, he could be singing like Don Giovanni or something. It, It is incredibly vocal. It is incredibly technical. And I think that's the beauty of of Sondheim, but the beauty of this this particular musical is that a lot of it is in the way that he writes for the voice. It's very virtuosic, but very embodied. I mean, it's it's sort of emotion embodied, and and everybody's written really differently, and it sort of characterizes them. So that's my long answer to say I don't know, but maybe both. Yeah. <laughs> um, definitely, but definitely a foot in the world of yes. in the world of classical music, we might say. Yes. Um, and I think Sondheim talks about in some ways Sweeney Todd is sort of his tribute to the film scores that shaped yes. him, right? So he has like Bernard Herrmann, and mm-hmm. uh, what's the uh, what's the other guy that um, scored a lot of Hitchcock films? I, I'm, his name is just oh out yeah, of my head. I can't. Um, but guys who were very much shaped by early 20th century, well, actually were tw- early 20th century opera and classical composers, mm-hmm. who then wrote quite a bit for for you know ni- films in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, so he's got a kind of uh, 19th and 20th century classical music, I think, very much in his ear. And then is borrowing. So talk a little bit about Dies Irae and kind of how that comes. The light into motif. The, the light, the light motif. motif of Dies Irae, which I think it, in itself makes this really operatic. I mean, you know, who was the yeah. king of light motif? It was Wagner. Like exactly. Um, yep. Problematically high, but he was really good at light motifs. Yeah, I cannot take full credit for everything that I can say about the Dies Irae because I, I started reading and lots of people have thought about this a lot more than I did. But I hadn't really listened to this musical thoughtfully for like 20 years. So I was listening to it last week and the, the opening came on and they started singing, sing or raise or high. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, it's the Dies Irae. And I texted my mom and I texted my friends and they were like, yeah, yeah. it sure is. So, so, Good one, Arwen. <laughs> wow, you're smart. <laughs> no. But it turns out that it is kind of the, the, the structure of the entire musical. You can look at almost any of the songs and find either a literal Dies Irae, an inverted Dies Irae, or sort of the, the outline. But I think that it's most obviously stated in the opening. Um, yeah. The very first thing that happens after the very churchy organ mm-hmm. opening, yes. which I think we should yes. probably talk about. But the yeah. first thing that happens is that this Greek chorus comes out and they sing, attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. And then they get to swing your razors high, Sweeney. That is literally the Dies Irae. Dies Irae, Dies Irae. Yeah, and it's everywhere. It's all over the musical. I could list them all, but you'd get really bored. Street. Swing your razor wide, swinging, holding 
significantly Joanna, the, the kind of the mm-hmm. other, I think, musical. I don't think there's any echoes of Diaziri and I feel you, Joanna. I mean, it's, it's a very lyrical. Right. Um, so in some ways, right. like, those are kind of the two worlds, if you like. There's Anthony mm-hmm. uh, and everything that he represents. And then mm-hmm. there's Sweeney and everything he represents. Um, yeah. And Diaziri and then the sort of the da-da-da. I, I think the, the kind of the, the mm-hmm. lyrical leaps of Joanna are sort of the two musical leitmotifs, if you like. That were really, right, and there's some others. Right. He does, a, he has a Sweeney Mad motif. Mrs. Lovett always gets the, you know, da 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 da. da. She has a little kind yeah. of bounce. But even thing. that is, is sort of. But even of, that's um, Diaz yeah. yeah, yeah. Upside down. And actually, yeah. one that I thought of in the shower this morning was um, Toby's da 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 dee dee. It's an inverted Diaz which I hadn't really considered oh, before. That's so even this innocent character. Yeah. And then when he does dee da 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 da, demons are prowling, that is not inverted. That's the literal thing, and which I think is very um, sort of. Smart of Sondheim to do the demons. And to, exactly, demons are prowling everywhere Mm -hmm, to have mm -hmm. that be framed as the Dies Irae, yeah. Right. So the Dies Irae, it's the day of judgment, the day of wrath. It's the uh, beginning of the Catholic Requiem Mass classically, Mm -hmm. the terror of hell, uh, the last days, all of So just to set the days for those who may not follow the plot. I guess we skipped a step, didn't we? It's actually, I mean, so in thinking about the theology of the show, actually, I think looking at the Dies Irae, I mean, apparently, right, Sondheim said, I don't know the Dies Irae, I don't know, right, like, all of this, y'all are making sure this up. Didn't. I did not, Steve. sure, yeah, I, I think he's probably smarter than that. But, I mean, I think it's usually talked about by music theorists as, right, oh, this whole show is about death, so, of course, he's using the Dies Irae, it's part of the Requiem Mass. Actually, the Dies Irae, I think, is more about vengeance and and mm-hmm. judgment than it is about death, right? The, the lyric, you know, the, the trumpet shall sound scattering... Through the, uh, the sepulchres of the region, death and nature will marvel when the creature rises again to respond to the judge. Now, if that's not the opening of Sweeney Todd, right, which is literally mm-hmm. a resurrection, right? The, op- the opening ballad of Sweeney Todd, where we first get that, swing your razor wide. It's, that's Sweeney being, we might say darkly, resurrected from the dead mm-hmm. to coming come out of back, the grave. coming out of the grave, yep, yep to, to tell his story at one level. But it's a story about, I mean, Sweeney becomes the instrument of, I mean, he says, you know, I serve a dark and a hungry God. I serve a dark and a vengeful God. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. He served a dark and a vengeful God. He served a dark and a vengeful God. What happened then? Well, that's the play, and he wouldn't want us to give it away. Not Sweeney. Not Sweeney Todd. But deep in all of it, sweet. He is the Dies Irae. We might say kind of, I mean, I don't want to put too fine a point on this. Like, what is Sweeney? Is he the Antichrist? Is he the, I mean, there's a certain kind of redemption that Sweeney, it's it's redemption through retributive violence. Um, but Sweeney is seeking to, right, like kind of right the wrongs of an unjust society. He is God's judgment, mm-hmm. uh, re-embodied in this very dark way to wreak vengeance on a corrupt uh, you know, horrible society. That's you know that that's that's the whole kind of class thing that I think Hal Prince is right. Like that that those 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 below will serve those up above. Right? They 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 literally off the rich people, bake them into pies, and serve them to poor people. Poor people are literally eating the bodies of the rich. Um, so there is this kind of capitalist critique, and that I think is what Sweeney. So I mean, kind of to Peter's earlier question, right? Like, is this a a fable about the danger of, of vengeance and retributive violence. Yeah, maybe. I think it's also the DS Erie kind of embodied in mm-hmm. in Victorian London. This is, we might say, 
some kind of God's judgment on a corrupt world. And Sweeney becomes the, like, sort of the Dies Irae, the, the, the instrument of justice embodied. He is certainly operating from a very firm morality. You know, he is not yeah. a vengeful guy going out right. to get personal revenge. He is operating on a very clear system of right and wrong. And what has been done to him is wrong. And he yeah. will do right by eliminating the people who are um, yeah. corrupt. The, and it's interesting that he talks about the vermin of the world, not as the bad people, but the vermin of right. the world are all of us. The good He's among around. the vermin of the world, right. So the vermin of the world should be glad to die so they can die. It's no big deal. And then the people who are on top need to be brought down. So it's this very... I mean, it's kind it's of the Magnificat, clear. isn't it? Like the, the, mm-hmm. the, the mighty shall be cast down from their thrones, the lowly shall be lifted up. I mean, in some ways, like Sweeney's taking the whole... Um, a God's preferential option for the poor, if you like, and the way that that gets cast then in the New Testament, kind of taking that a couple steps further, right? Like, what does it look like if Mary's prophecy is brought is brought home to roost in Victorian London? It means the the Beatles and the judges, and I mean, to, maybe to the point, the priests and the clergy and the the justice system, the religious system, all of these systems of power and hierarchy, they all get gobbled up by, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, the vermin of the world. I mean, it, it actually is in some ways, like, it's right next door to the gospel according to Luke, uh, mm-hmm. just in a very in a very dark key. The history of the world by sweet is who gets eaten and who gets, and who to, gets eat. to eat. I mean, yeah. there it is. And, and, and while we're on that, why don't we talk about a little priest, just uh, one of the songs mm-hmm. I think this podcast of all podcasts and talking podcasts. about Sweeney Todd, because... <laughs> Here's this macabre theme that you guys have been unfolding so beautifully of uh, uh, class, class warfare, class structure, revenge, all these dynamics. And Sondheim brilliantly turns it into one of the funniest, okay. cleverest, and most macabre songs, I think, in the musical theater canon. I mean, with the price of meat, what it is, when you get it, if you get it, Ha! Good you got it. Take, for instance, Mrs. Mooney and a pie shop. Business never better using only pussy cats and toast. And a pussy's good for maybe six or seven at the most. And I'm sure they can't compare as far as taste. Mrs. Lovett, what a charming notion. Well, and a handy practical and not appropriate as always. Mrs. Lovett, how I've lived without you all these years. I never know Think how about it. Lots of other gentlemen will soon be coming for a shame. Won't they? Think about choice. all that Oh, what's the sound of the world out there? What, Mr. Todd? What, Mr. Todd? What is that sound? Those crunching noises pervading the air. Mr. Todd, yes, Mr. Todd, yes, all around. It's man devouring man, my dear. And who are we to deny it in here? Ah, oh, these are desperate times, Mrs. Lovett. And desperate measures must be taken. Here we are now, hot out of the oven. What is that? It's priest. Have a little priest. Is it really good? Sir, it's too good, at least. Then again, they don't commit sins of the flesh. So it's pretty fresh. Awful lot of fat. Only where it's at. Haven't you got poet or something like that? Now you see the trouble with poet is how do you know it's deceased? Try the priest. Mmm, heavenly. 
Not as hearty as Bishop, perhaps, but then not as bland as Curate, either. Good for business, too. Always leaves you wanting more. Trouble is, we only get it on Sundays. It's Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney talking about who, what human being has been baked into a pie. Yeah, it's in some ways like it's sort of an ex- I mean, this is sort of Sondheim at his most Sondheimiest, which is it's it's just clever wordplay, you know, almost like you know it, it just like that song just kind of keeps going, like they, they mm-hmm. there's just one kind of you know one one uh, verbal gag after another, you know, like just punning on one syllable or two syllable you know job titles of gentry and professionals in Victorian England and making little kind of punny jokes about them in a way where it's like it is kind of just like a what like an encyclopedia of Mm -hmm. Victorian England and all the different ways we can kind of joke about what it would be like to eat pies made out of those people I mean and then it like like, it just never really stops right it just kind of like they just kind of keep you know joke after joke after joke in this almost kind of I mean it's almost long yeah it's a really long song really long yeah, Arwen and I have, have uh, at some point, we would like to kind of do it, I think, as part of a trip. So I was looking and I was like, are, we both were like, there's no way we're, like, we're going to have to, like, we would either have to have books in front of us or, you know, like, rewrite this. Because it's like, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and I and I think, you know, it, it's, it is broad comedy. It's kind of, it's a little musical-y, right? Like, it's, uh, it's, in some ways, it's the most kind of musical theater-ish kind of moment. Um, yeah, as you as you, Arwen says, Mrs. Lovett's music often is a little more kind of classically music comedy. It's a little, it's not quite as operatic. It's a little more, mm-hmm. but here it's just, you know, it's just a big gag. But to Peter's point, right? Like in a very kind of, uh, you know, like what they're talking about is eating people, which they're going to do as soon as the curtain falls in the second act uh, kind of begins. So yeah, I think, I think it is, I guess I'm interested in how that song functions dramatically, right? Like, does it, does it take us away from the kind of unremitting doom and gloom and scary horror bits and give us away? Um, like, what's what's the point of finding the humor in eating in, in cannibalism? We might say in murder and cannibalism. <laughs> like, why 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 is that important in the context of a show like Sweeney Todd? I mean, dramatically, I think it, it on the surface, like at the most basic level, it comes immediately after the epiphany when when Sweeney right. sort of gets his uh, his mission stated and he says, okay, I'm here to kill all of you. We're they all, all going to die. We all yep. deserve to die. And this is all in service of a, a sort of higher good, Sweeney's higher good. It happens right after that. So it's kind of a slap in the face. And it's also like a wake up. Everything isn't terrible. But yeah. that that's at its most basic, right? That's just the, yep. we need to um, break the tension. Musically and dramatically, right? And, well, and yeah, it's a good act one closer, right? Because it allows us to end right, on, a, on a high note. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's also, I guess the other, my other question here, and Sondheim talks, you know, he says, Mrs. Lovett is the real villain of this piece, right? And so, like, one way we could read mm-hmm. Sweeney Todd is he is an innocent, as Arwen says, right? Like, Sweeney has a strong moral code. He's not a bad guy. He's a guy who was done wrong to. And one way you can read Sweeney Todd, I mean, uh, Mrs. Lovett is almost the Lady Macbeth of this thing, right? She recognizes him right away. And you could, you could understand all of Sweeney Todd as Mrs. Lovett's revenge fantasy, um, kind of mm-hmm. enacted through her, you know, Sweeney gets the moment where his, his right arm is complete again when he holds, uh, right, the, the razor, at last my arm is complete. In some ways, Sweeney himself is Mrs. Lovett's right arm completed, mm-hmm. right? She is the one, in some ways, who 
Um, you know, like she's the one who comes up with the idea to bake the right. Like, you know me, you know, weird ideas just pop into my head. Um, and she she's the one then who kind of launches this whole enterprise. It's really kind of her dream and all done in this. You know, it's like she, and Angela Lansbury does it. So, you know, she's like, got you know, these cat eyes out to here. These weird like she's almost a clown in a certain yeah. kind of way. There's a buffoonish quality to Mrs. Lovett. I think that's kind of deliberately like she's presented to us as scatterbrained and a little bit. Um, I mean, a little not unhinged but it's an eccentric harmless sweet old lady and then underneath it right i think that's in some ways like um in a little priest you get she's um she's very clever she's really smart she's entirely in control of the english language in this very punny way and so i think underneath the humor of this thing you really i mean maybe not for the first time but for it really uh it fleshes out mrs lovett as she's the brains behind this thing Mm -hmm. um she's she's in control of this story this is mrs lovett's show She's she's the one who's who's got the jokes and then kind of enlists Sweeney and that may become collaborators for sure in it. But she yeah, I, I, I love I love that a little priest kind of allows us to see Mrs. Lovett in a certain kind of way. Right. She you know, she never gets her swing her razor wide Sweeney. She gets a little priest. And that's her moment of uh, in some ways it's kind of her. I want I guess, you know, the worst pies in London is really her. I want song. That's when we kind of get introduced to her. Um, but this this song really fleshes her out in some interesting ways. I think it's such an interesting uh, choice to use that very funny, very body kind of musical idiom as a way of helping us understand who this person is, because she is going to end up being kind of the, the villain of the piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you make of her, Arwen, when you saw this when you were a high school oh, kid? Well, uh, my first introduction to Angela Lansbury was uh, Mrs. Potts in the Beauty and the Beast. Of course. So, the, like the animated Disney movie. So that was a little bit of a shocker. I was like, oh, Mrs. Potts, <laughs> you're not who I thought you were. But, <laughs> it's a darker um, side to Mrs. Potts. There is a darker side. I, you know, I don't know. I was thinking about that when I was rewatching it. Um, I, I rewatched the Angela Lansbury, George Hearn sort of staged movie. And I just cannot remember what I thought of her. But I, I do remember, you know, recently thinking about her in kind of the way that Nathan was talking about. I think as a high schooler, I thought that the judge was the villain of the show. Yeah. And he is absolutely not. And he I mean, is. He is a bad dude. He's a bad but dude. But even um, as, as corrupt as he is, he has his moment. When we see him in private, he is flagellating himself, literally flagellating himself, trying not to lust after his ward, his daughter, basically. Well, or, so, I mean, or it's getting not, off on self-punishment. No, it's true. Yeah. It's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. But, you know, he there there is at least that tension, right? He's not um, an archetypal villain in the sense that he is purely evil with no, like, humanity. He does have humanity. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, mea maxima, maxima culpa. God deliver me, release me, forgive me, restrain me, evade me. Joanna, Joanna, so suddenly a woman, the light behind your window, it penetrates your God. Joanna, Joanna, the sun, I see the sun through your... No! God, deliver me, deliver me, down, down, down. Joanna, Joanna, I watch you from the shadows. You sigh before your window and gaze upon the top. 
lips part, Joanna. So young and soft and beautiful. God, deliver me. Please leave me. Joanna, Joanna, I treasured you in innocence and loved you like a daughter. You mock me, Joanna. You tempt me with your innocence. You tempt me with those cool rivers. Oh, God, deliver me. It will stop. No, it will stop. Right now. Right now. Right now. She, though, she is very aware of what she's doing. She is running this show from the very beginning, and we don't have any idea. The very first thing that happens is that he comes in and he says, you know, here's the story of the barber, blah, blah, blah. And she says, oh, I knew it was you. And she tells him that Lucy poisoned herself. And we don't find out until, you know, an hour and a half later that she never said she was dead. And so from the very first moment we meet her, she is like pulling the strings. She is the puppeteer. And I think that's not something that occurred to me in quite the, the the deliberate way that it did recently when I was, you know, obsessed with this musical as a kid. Is that just disgusting? You have to concede it. It's nothing but trusting. You drink this, you'll need it. The worst pies in London. And no wonder with the price of meat what it is when you get it. Never thought I'd live to see the day. Men that think it was a treat, finding poor animals what are dying in the street. Mrs. Mooney has a pie shop, does a business, but I've noticed something weird. Lately, all the neighbors' cats have disappeared. After wind it to a what I call enterprise, popping pussies into pies. Wouldn't do in my shop. Just the thought of it's enough to make you sick. And I'm telling you, the pussy cats is quick. Now nine times is hard, sir. Even harder than the worst pies in London. Only lad and nothing more is than just revolting. All greasy and gritty. It looks like it's melting and tastes like, well, pity a woman alone. With limited wind. And the worst pies in London Times is hard Times is hard Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's the most, I mean, in some ways, like, the most interesting and complicated character in this. I mean, Sweeney is fascinating. As you say, he gets all the kind of great operatic mo. Epiphany is an incredible... Kind of, I mean, it's a great Sondheim breakdown. I actually, I think what Sondheim is doing a little bit in Epiphany is, um, I think that's his, you know, he loves Billy Bigelow's soliloquy in Carousel, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of one of Sondheim. Sondheim talks about seeing that on Broadway in 1945, I think he's 13, being like reduced to, like he was so impacted by that moment in Carousel. And I think Epiphany in some ways is sort of trying to, I think it's in that key, right? This is watching a character uh, go from, you know, point A to point B to point C, all in a kind of a thing. It's it, 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 Epiphany, right? Like it is, Sweeney's kind of like great uh, kind of eye-opening thing. They all deserve to die. Tell your why, Mrs. Love, tell your why. Because in all of the whole human race, Mrs. Lovett, there are two kinds of men and only two. There's the one staying put in his proper place, and the one with his foot in the other one's face. Look at me, Mrs. Lovett, look at you. Though we all deserve to die. Tell you why, Mrs. Lovett, tell you why. 
Because the lives of the wicked should be made brief For the rest of us death will be a relief We all deserve to die And I'll never see Joanna No, I'll never hug my girl to be finished All right, you sir, how about a shame? Come and visit your good friend, Sweeney. You, sir, too, sir, welcome to the grave. I will have vengeance. I will have salvation. Who, sir? You, sir? No one's in the chair. Come on, come on! Sweeney's waiting. I want you, leaders. Sir, anybody, gentlemen, now don't be shy. Not one man, no, not ten men, nor a hundred can assuage me. I will have you. <laughs> and I will get him back, even as he gloats in the Time I'll practice on less honorable throats And my Lucy lies in ashes And I'll never see my girl again But the work waits I'm alive at last And I'm So Sweeney gets, I mean, some of the, you know, the great dramatic moments. Um, and then, you know, and then Mrs. Lovett kind of comes in to do this other thing. But she's, she's the fascinating, you know, because she never, unlike Sweeney, Mrs. Lovett never gets a song where she's like, here's what I, right? Like, here's what I'm here to do. She doesn't get her manifesto song. She sings musical stuff. She jokes about meat pies. She, you know, tries to get people to, I don't know, like, it's a much, it's a, it's a much more nuanced and subtle depiction. It, and in some ways, like, I don't know, there is an interesting, um, there's an interesting gender thing there in terms mm-hmm. of power and who, I don't know, like, who has the, the social permission to be a, I mean, Mrs. Lovett could probably, I mean, she probably could be up there slitting throats. But in terms of Victorian London, like, she's doing, in some ways, like, the best, she's, she's making, um, she's making work for her, the role that society has given her as this harmless, blousy Auntie Nettie on her, you know, melodeon in the parlor. Um, and using all of the, I mean, in some ways, like, this is using the master's tools to take down the master's house, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, uh, basically making a kind of, uh, owning all of the stereotypes that she is being handed as a kind of musical broad and using all of that stuff to kill people. I mean, there's something so fascinating to me about the way that she, that she plays on stereotypes, that even the, the, the music that Sondheim gives her in order to, you know, like to, to do her, to do her, you know, I don't know, whatever her motivation. And it's never really clear, like, right, what are her, right. like, what, why is Mrs. Lovett enlisted? I mean, wh- what, we, what we think is she's clearly got a thing for Benjamin Barker, right? Like she, you know, a lot of her, uh, her songs to, to him are kind of, you know, seductive or enticing, like, like she, you know, she wants to go to the sea with him, I think, although... As you, by the end of the show, it's like, even that I'm not sure I believe. 
You know, yeah. like all of that feels manipulative to me. I think she knows this is how he expects me to be. Clearly they're sleeping together throughout this whole thing. So she's using, you know, she's using her sexuality in a certain kind of way, I think, to work him. But like what, like what's driving this woman? What happened to her? She doesn't really have a backstory. We don't really know. Yeah. What, what has Mrs. Lovett been doing that, you know, however long Benjamin Barker's been away in the penal colonies? Like what, you know, she's been, she's been treasuring those razors that he left because she's got them ready to go. And you kind of get the sense of like, oh, he's back. Finally, the thing that I want more than anything in the world can happen again now, which is, I think, to, right? Like, I think she's interested in offing all these men who, you know, like she never tells us what has happened to her, but something is driving this woman. Um, but you never, you never find out what it is. I, I just find that so fascinating. Well, I think that something interesting that you um, sort of intimated earlier is that the epiphany is Sweeney's big moment, right? And in any other show, it would be the act one finale. Yep. And mm. it's not. And it's I think not. the fact that that she then comes in and does this incredibly clever, sort of punny, really engaging number at the end of this act tells us that she's not who she said she is. Because I think that our instinct as an audience is to see exactly what you're saying, that right. she is she is not what she says she is. She's saying that she's the batty old lady. And that's what we mm-hmm. want to see because that's what society does, right? Women yeah. get over a certain age. They're yeah. maybe a little bit weird. We that's just totally we write them off. how we keep them comfortable, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. we make them safe by making mm-hmm. them batty. Put her yeah. over here. Isn't she cute? Yeah. Stick her over there. And so I think that in putting this huge number of hers at the end of the first act, that is sort of her, here's who I am for us, for the audience. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, how will we know? <laughs> like she, We see her as she wants to be seen. And then there's this big reveal. Sondheim says, nope, this is not who she says. She is not who she says she is. Peter, what do you think? Well, I, I was, so can I just put maybe a good word for Mrs. Lovett, uh, just uh, just for <laughs> argument's sake. Um, sure. First is, uh, physically, the set does set up upstairs, downstairs between Sweeney mm. and mm. Mrs. Lovett. He's on top. He's interacting with people. She's below. So we have already a power differential there. Um, why? So my question is beyond just the macabre interest of, uh, grinding up human beings, why would she be interested in this at all? And, uh, and, and what comes to me is economics. Yeah. Uh, Meat is expensive. She needs to make a living and she's not only, uh, downstairs to Sweeney, uh, as a female within Victorian society, she's downstairs to everybody. And if yeah, you yeah, want to make a yeah. living, you gotta, and you're and you're making meat pies, and you don't want to go to the butcher and, and buy you can't a cow catch the cats fast enough, right? right? Here the pussy is, cats is quick. They are. Here is an economic <laughs> boon for her. Here is a windfall. She's got. Uh, so I see a kind of, and and please understand, I am not advocating in any way. Uh, cannibalism or or grinding up human beings. Just to be but, clear. <clears throat> thank you. But just to step back, here she has come up with an enterprise that will actually sustain her. And then the tenderness between her and Toby, is that feigned or is that real? Is it that is so creepy? Hard to know. What so is hard it? To know. I mean, yeah. Toby seems to me to be the innocent who is corrupted by this mm-hmm. cycle of violence that swirls around him, or is he? Or is he? I don't know. Like, there's a way of I, the, the, so when it, when Sweeney Todd was revived with uh, Patty Lapone and Michael Cherveris, I think uh, 2015. Yes. I don't remember what what year that was. That was John Doyle's production, though. And the whole thing was staged. It began with Toby. 
uh, in a uh, tied, you know, in in a straitjacket, in a, in an asylum of some kind. And these attendants came out. They un undid his his ropes, set him free, and he was the one then as uh, as an insane as an inmate of an insane asylum who started singing Attend the Tale of Sweeney Todd. So the whole thing unfolded as a show in an insane asylum told by Toby. It's Toby's story, um, which, mm. you know, the, the script makes sense of because at the end, right, Toby is actually the one who offs Sweeney, and then they take him away. And I think then he kind of, he begins the, the, final, re- the final reprise of the bout of Sweeney Todd, right? He's the one at the end of the show right. who says, Attend the Tale of Sweeney Todd, we just told you this thing. So there is a sense in which this whole story is, is Toby's story. He, he, Joanna, and Anthony are the only ones who are left standing at the end. The lovers are off. Um, but it is kind of Toby's story. There's also a way in which I, I mean, kind of as with Mrs. Lovett, right? Like, to what degree is all of, I, I, I read the last scene as like, he's the one who's going to pay for all of this, right? Like, he's the one left holding the razor. There's like four mm-hmm. dead bodies on stage and there's a bunch of others in the bake oven. Presumably, Toby's the one they arrest, right? They assume that he's the mad, he's the mad one who's been offing all of these people. So, you know, yeah, is he the innocent that's corrupted or is he also, you know, like he he's working for Finelli or whatever the barber's name is? Ferelli. Ferelli, yeah. yeah. He's working for Ferelli, <laughs> you know. I think there again, you could you could almost as he's a little bit of a Mrs. Lovett character. He's using the um the stereotypes and the tropes and the way that he's just like a harmless cripple, right? Like actually to, you know, maybe there again to make a living, to figure out how he's gonna eke his way by. So, I mean, he's the one that begins, nothing's gonna harm you, not while I'm around. He's singing it to Mrs. Lovett. And it's, I think we're meant to understand this as like, I will protect you no matter what. I will protect you from this demon, Sweeney Todd. Uh, Toby's very kind of threatened by Sweeney. So, and then Mrs. Lovett kind of sings it back to him as kind of a way, she's, she's realized, oh, he knows that Sweeney's up to no good. I have to get rid of this kid. So kind of, you know, that, that's where Nothing's Gonna Harm You takes on a very dark edge because Mrs. Lovett's singing it to, to Toby as she kind of pushes him downstairs to basically oh. like get him ready to be killed. Presumably that's Would what that- she's doing. Horrible violin obligato. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, it's so Sorry. creepy. It's oh. it's ironic that's become like a lullaby song. Like Barbara Streisand does in one of her albums as like, you know, here's oh. my lullaby to my child. My mom loves this song. And I'm like, oh, Kicks. dear mother. Like, it's all about the, I mean, we might say the, and I don't want to go into Sondheim's biography too much, but like the toxic relationship between mothers and sons. Like, that's mm-hmm. kind of what, you know, like Sondheim's mom was pretty awful. Um, I, I don't imagine that he's, you know, imagine that she would have sung this to him. But it is a song about a, a mother figure getting ready to off her son. And maybe then, if Toby is also using his stuff to get what he, you know, maybe it's also Toby manipulating Mrs. Lovett into uh, lulling her into a false sense of security. I mean, I think all of these characters are more complicated than they yeah. seem on the surface. I think that that's yes. what the, mu- the music allows us to see that, right? What What on the surface of things is a very kind of, uh, you know, it's stock characters, it's melodrama, there's not a lot of complex, it's lovers and, and villains, as Arwen says, right? Like, there's not a lot of, but the music then is what complicates these characters mm-hmm. and allows us as an audience to say, oh, all of these are people playing certain kind of socially prescribed roles and using those roles as a means of doing something very subversive. Being close and being clever ain't like being true. I don't need to, I won't never hide a thing from you like some. <laughs> now let's stop all this foolish chatter and just sit here nice and quiet. Nothing's gonna harm you, not while I'm around. Nothing's gonna harm you, Toby. 
not while I'm around. Demons are prowling everywhere nowadays. I'll send them howling, I don't care. Boys and their fancies, what will we think of next? No one's gonna hurt you, no one's gonna dare. Others can desert you, not to worry, we'll all be there. Demons will charm you with a smile for a while, but in time, nothing's gonna harm you. makes me wonder so much about Joanna and Anthony. Like, who are they? What is their deal? Are they really what they appear to be, which is just yeah. two stupid idiots who fall in love for no reason and yeah. are, are sort of uh, swept away in this horrible drama? Like, are they actually as basic as they appear? As they seem to be? I mean, they are. Yeah, that's a great question, right? So, I mean, so Joanna gets Green Finch and Linnet Bird. I don't, I don't know your Ugh. thoughts on that song. I hate that Ugh. song. Yeah, <laughs> you do too. Have, did you ever, have you ever had to sing it, Arwen? Is that, oh, yeah. I would love to hear it's you. I, I, I was watching it last no, night. I was wouldn't. watching whoever the girl in the horrible blonde wig is on the the same right i was like oh my god you gotta be and she i don't i don't particularly like her voice and i remember thinking like oh i would love to hear i would love to hear arwen sing this i won't inflict that song on you but yeah it's i mean you know at a certain level it's like she's in a cage like we get it right like she's attracted to birds because they're singing in cages she's in like okay like okay cool Uh, she's in an awful (laughs) blonde wig and anthony too right like to your point he's kind of you know like all he does is he's freddie einsford hill and my fair lady like all he does is wander around london like looking at like where is she i see and now i do have a soft spot in my heart for the song joanna because that was my audition piece for many years so i i I both oh yeah Um, joanna was my uh that was my when i you know like when i was auditioning for all of the kind of male ingenue roles that in some ways i was very wrong for but you know it's like well i can i can hit the tenor notes so like that was my that was my audition piece with Joanna. So and I do think there is a um there's a sweetness to to, to Joanna. Him. And but is and there maybe to, her? to him. What's her deal? What's I don't know. her deal? Yeah. I mean she you I, there probably is a way of playing Joanna where you could say she's uh she she too like Mrs. Lovett, she's looking for, to escape the clutches of this horrible guy who's got her under his mm-hmm. thumb. I mean when the the show sketches very kind of, you know, Oh, it you you kind of like what's Joanna's life been like? You know, right. like to what degree has she already been traumatized? I mean, you know, like right. at what at what point did the judge start taking liberties with her? Like, I mean, and then she's in the madhouse for like how long is she in that mad? It, 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 that's the intermission break, right? Like he puts right. her in Fogg's asylum, and like how long is she there? Like, I mean. So she at one level, like, it's like that was last August, right? That like, was last August. Like, yeah, it's like, not clear if that's a joke or not. Months, but. yeah. I mean, like, yeah. So if there's a traumatized character in Sweeney Todd, it's Joanna. Like, she's the one who's actually, right. you know. But I think to your point, Arwen, like, also, you know, like, you, like I think about Kiss Me, you know, that whole kind of complicated quintet thing where she's like, I don't know your name, I don't know your name, Kiss Me. I mean, like, she, like Mrs. Lovett, is kind of, um, I don't want to say using Antony, but, you know, it's like, here's my escape. This guy, you know, mm-hmm. like, 
this is this is the means by which I get some sort of autonomy as a, you know, pretty little blonde young thing without a thought in my head. I can use right. that actually. If that's what this if that's how this guy sees me, okay, I'll use that because yeah. that's my means of getting out of this thing. So I think there again, right? I think the music allows us to see, oh, there's more going on for this girl than just yeah. the the blonde ingenue. I feel you Half convinced I'd waken, satisfied enough to dream you. Happily, I was mistaken, Joanna. I'll steal you, Joanna. I'll steal you. Do they think that walls can? Hide you even now I'm at your window I am in the dark beside you buried sweetly in your yellow hair I feel I'm with you then, I'm with you there, sweetly buried in your yellow hair. I want to poke a little bit at Anthony like what's really going on with like is there more to this guy than just you know right. stalwart young sailor falls in love with a girl in a window and then becomes obsessed with her and I mean you know in sort of the classic music hall melodrama he's just a you know he's the male lead I don't I don't know he does you know he does he I, he's presented to us right off the bat as kind of the the mirror of Sweeney, the young, you know, say, I think about them yeah. like coming in on that ship, right? And he, and he's the one, you know, I have sailed the world and under wonders from, you, know, you get this kind of, and then Sweeney takes that same melody in a minor key, right? Like I too have sailed the world and seen its wonders. So they get, they get coupled in an interesting kind of way right, right. off the bat. So, you know, I guess dramatically he does kind of function. And actually there's this really interesting dialogue uh, right in, in that first scene where, you know, he says, you know, Mr. Todd, I'm, we, we part now and, Sweeney says, thank you so much. And he said, oh, any, any Christian would have saved you, just like I did. And Sweeney says, oh, no, there's a lot of Christians who would have done a lot worse. Uh, so there's this okay. interesting... So one way, if I'm going to go a little theological, I think Antony kind of embodies a kind of innocent Christianity. Mm. Uh, the, the, the stained glass Victorian image of the godly man, if I'm going to be a little more socially encoded. And Sweeney then is the uh, the mirror side of that, the the yin to that yang, the 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 dark the dark version, the, the the real version of what lies underneath that stained glass blonde Victorian Christian godly man. It's okay. Sweeney. Well, I'm just wondering, is he when you said that, is he what Benjamin Barker should have been? Like, is he hmm. is he Benjamin Barker before he got sent away on this trumped up charge? Like, I, I just wonder because all we know about Benjamin Barker before is how much he loved his wife. Yeah. And that yeah. he was an upstanding barber, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and and so that and yeah, and so literally, right? This is the second gen. Like, you know, he's falling in love with Benjamin Barker's daughter, and Joanna gets mm-hmm. you know like tied to Lucy in. And often they're played by the same actress, right? Like, right. Uh, all the things that they they that Sweeney talks about with Lucy, we see in Joanna. That's the and a lot, and a lot of it's the hair. I mean, like they're really obsessed <laughs> with her blonde hair. So let's just, just I mean, like it. let's just let's just flag that as like okay, there's got to be more than more, more to these women than their hair. But you know, as as with Into the Woods, a lot of time is spent talking about the difference between like Tawny and blonde and golden I mean you know like it's for whatever reason yeah sometimes really into like blonde hair and figuring out the different shades of it I don't I don't I don't need to know what that's about um, None of us are blonde yeah. here. We don't None understand. Of, it. Exactly. It's like okay, whatever. I mean, you, you do you. You do you, Steve. That you, you do you do you. <laughs> but 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 Auntie and Joanna, I think are. I think to your point, Arwen, they are kind of meant to mirror Benjamin and Lucy, right? Like there is a there is a kind of second. And Sweeney sometimes sees that, right? Like he, I don't think he loves the fact that Antony's into his daughter, but he also uses Antony being into his yeah. daughter as a way of getting his daughter back, or trying to, right. or getting the judge. Um, so he's he using care? it. Well, yeah, it's so That's it's so interesting. Yeah, like what's going on I miss you less there? and less as every day goes by, Joanna. Yeah. I mean, that's, okay, thanks, Dad. Yeah, it's, it's weird. <laughs> it's a weird, yeah. Well, and that, and I mean, to jump to another Joanna, right, the third Joanna, which is the one where Sweeney's offing everybody, right? It's this beautiful kind of, I see you, hand, bum, 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 yeah. with yellow hair, like her squint. Um, yep. You know, it's like, so there is this kind of weird, I mean, poor Joanna. She's got the judge and she's got her dad, both of them, with this kind of strange obsession with her. That I think has yeah. nothing to do with her as a person, and has a lot no. to do with her as a blonde thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's creepy. the whole the whole world is infected here, isn't it? Really, yeah. Um, infected with is it class violence? Is it is it retributive violence? Uh, what is it that it, that infects this world? Uh, uh, a world that's full of shit. The there's yeah. a hole in the world, et cetera, et cetera, and. Uh, to what extent is it is a Christian? I mean, in the original, apparently the original original set uh, in the previews before it went to uh, open on Broadway, there was a Victorian organ on the stage, stage left mm. or stage right, I guess, that had over it the blood of Jesus covers all our sins, a sort wow. of emblem over the top of it, and the organ wow. was removed. Uh-huh. And uh, in an interview with Sondheim, he he doesn't remember the organ at all, but there are archival photographs of this. Anyway, it left. In the John Doyle production with Patti LuPone, a white box, basically an asylum, as you said, Nathan, but apparently over top of a bunch of bric-a-bac at the, at, at the back of the set was a cross, a crucifix, mm-hmm. a very explicit Jesus dying on the cross mm-hmm. image. That wouldn't have been, uh, that would actually be completely appropriate for an insane asylum uh, run by uh, a, a Christian, Christian insane asylum. A yep. Christian mm. insane asylum. Quote so, unquote, yeah. <clears throat> my point is hovering over this show is some notion of, of sacrifice, of suffering, and of violence. And I think as Christians, uh, we kind of have to comment on that in, in mm-hmm. some way. And I mean, the way that, I mean, uh, being a kind of disciple of René Girard and James Allison, the notion of how revenge and violence can infect a community and the antidote to it, given that we're coming, we're in Lent as we record this and coming into Holy Week and Easter is, you know, if anybody had a just cause for revenge, it's the crucified Jesus. 
right? Uh, in the resurrection, coming back and saying, Roundup, let's go get him, right? Uh, his friends betrayed him. He's, uh, he's executed on trumped up charges, but he becomes Jesus, the forgiving victim who says, breaks the cycle of violence and then invites followers. I mean, that's the kind of classic interpretation from a Girardian, uh, James Allison kind of view. And, and so it's in the imitation of Christ to resist the, 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 the call to revenge, which obviously Sweeney doesn't hear. <laughs> right. And, and so is it a cautionary tale about what happens when revenge is just loosed upon a human community? without any redemption, without any any cause. Just a way to look at it. Yeah. There's a thousand others. Although at the same time, it seems, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And there's so many questions about who Sweeney is in this narrative. Is he Jesus? Is he the Antichrist? Uh, and, but I think that there is He's at a least demon. a... Well, right? In the title, yeah. He is the demon barber of He's Fleet the demon barber Street. of So what does Street. that mean? But it, mean? there is at least a, a coded criticism of religion itself, right? Yes. Because yes. the judge is the, the villain in this story, yeah. as far as we know. And he's described from the outset as a pious vulture of the law. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other sort of bad character is the beetle. Um, yeah. And uh, Which we're is not a, really clear a on... A church usher. We, exactly. Right? Like, yeah. Exactly. That's a, he's a deliberately ecclesiastical yep, representative right. of the church. Yeah. Right. And in, in um, Judge Turpin's like one really twistedly, maybe redemptive moment when he's by himself, like doing his thing with modulation and other stuff. But let's say that some of that is actually him grappling with the the knowledge that this is bad, right? Even that is so explicitly sort of Catholic tied, right? And and even if it's not his redemptive moment, he's getting off on his ward while he's like whipping himself, flagellation style. God deliver me, God deliver me. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, it's a deliberately theological song, yeah. So like how much of this is the church being the villain? Like how much of this is the church postures and the church says it stands for these things, but it doesn't. So we have to take morality into our own hands. And clearly, I don't think Sondheim wants us to go like put our neighbors in meat pies, but I do think that there's something there. I do too. Yeah. And, and, and I'm interested kind of in this question. Of, I mean, so one way of looking at Sweeney Todd through a Girardian lens, Peter, as, as you've done, is we see it as a kind of morality tale where Sweeney's the the villain, right? Like Sweeney's the bad example, right? Don't don't be like this guy. He's But that's, I think, also a kind of victim shaming. I think if there's a morality aspect to Sweeney Todd, it's that the last, you know, when, when the company in the, the final uh, reprise of the Bow to Sweeney Todd, right? Uh, there, 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 there. He's right behind you, right? That's the warning right. at the end of the piece to the audience, right? Sweeney's out there. He's coming for you. So it's it's more, I think, a warning to a corrupt society and maybe to Arwen's mm-hmm. point, to a religion that says it's it stands for the blood of Jesus covering all our sins, but then goes, I mean, kind of as when he says to Anthony, right? Oh, there's plenty of Christians who are gonna, I mean, basically we are gobbling each other up all the time, even though we right. say that we stand for justice and righteousness and that, right? Like we're all living high on the hog off of the labor and the unfair treatment of those down below. Um, so it is, I think, an indictment of the church and then maybe to a society mm-hmm. that lets that uses religious language as a sanction for corruption. And I think the warning is to, I mean, it's to the audience, I think, right? Like Sweeney, well, yeah. you know, who, who knows what we, what we want to say about Sweeney? Maybe he's a kind of divinity figure. Maybe he's a demon figure. Maybe to a certain degree, it doesn't matter because, um, because you know, he's coming for you. So, you know, right. like, when he says out. he is. 
right? In the Epiphany, he says, I will have you, will you, have sir, you. come on and get yep. in the chair, right? Yeah, he breaks and the he fourth wall. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. to the audience. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the, he's, he, I mean, it's Diasire, right? Like the day of judgment is coming. So the Christian answer, you know, start living right now, right? Like it is a, it is a, a, a fear mongering kind of approach to religion for sure. But I don't, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. And so there's a, just sort of two, two thoughts about that. And I, I think you're, we're, we're onto something really important here. One is, this is so very Victorian. I'm thinking about Oliver, uh, where Mr. Bumble is the beetle of the workhouse mm. and uh, the, the Christian workhouses, the places that kept the kids in manual labor is what's, what, what Dickens is critiquing in, in Oliver Twist and then later in the musical Oliver. And I wonder, just to your point, Arwen and, and Nathan, about Sweeney is there. Is it in the society or just to go psychological for a moment? Is Sweeney within each of us, right? Is the, yeah. is mm-hmm. that what it is that is the kind of moral, uh, fable? Like, watch out. Sweeney is not far from any of us, not in a physical other people sense, although that too, but also in interiority. And then back to my point around the thirst for and the obsession that's driven by revenge, by wanting to, as Jesus put it, return no one evil for evil, right? Mm-hmm. When, when, when the notion is about when there's a lack of forgiveness, where there's a lack of wanting to make peace. And of course, as we record this today, uh, war in Ukraine is raging. Um, uh, the inhumanity, the slaughter of innocent people is, is happening as it has happened over the history of the world over and over and over again. So uh, Sweeney, both within society, but also uh, within potentially and, and frighteningly within each one of us. Yeah. I like that. So, th- so that last moment, that there, 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 is not like, oh, watch out, audience member, he's behind you. It's there, there, you, it's you, right? You're, mm-hmm. You have the potential. All of us have maybe the potential to start offing people and eating them. Maybe we already are and we just don't realize it. But yeah, well, corrupt society made up of individuals with this kind of corruption in our, in our hearts. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, the first thing that we hear about him is is him as a human, right? That the Tendus Hale of Sweeney Todd, his face was pale and his eye was odd. He shaved the faces of gentlemen. Like, that's the first thing we hear about him. It's not that he's like a demon and it's not that he's a, you know, sort of uh, vengeance uh, god. It's that he's a human. It, yeah. it twists pretty quickly. But, and you know, the first thing that he says of himself is that there was a barber and his wife and she was beautiful. It's a very human tale. Mm-hmm. And this human man changes his name as he is corrupted by society and becomes something else. He becomes an instrument of justice. Yeah. Uh, but he started out as just a guy as with a barber shop. Barker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Probably an Antony, right? A, a blonde innocent. Yeah. Yeah, he becomes a monster. Accident. He becomes a yes, monster. Because of the world. And I think yeah. that what you were saying, Peter, about what we're living in now, it really makes a lot of this feel very justly indictful of society, of humanity. I mean, the it's the whole, you know, the the whole human race, Mrs. Lovett, there are two kinds of men and only two. There's the one staying put in his proper place, and then there's the one in his, with his foot in the other one's face. Look at me, look at you. I mean, it's, it's very... Um, it feels very relevant because yeah. the war is happening. I mean, the climate is screwed because nobody wants to do anything about it. Look at politics. Look at the divisions in society. I mean, it's very, it, it's us, right? We're yeah. the problem. Right. I think that's right. Victorian society, yeah, is is not that mm-hmm. far away. 
Peter, you, you, you saw a production in Vancouver, I think, where they, they staged it in a, remind me, like one of the housing projects in Vancouver. Is that how Sweeney Todd was kind of recast? Yeah, and um, unsuccessful, but clearly wanting to put it on the streets of Vancouver and just play out the, uh, play out the, the, class, the class conflict. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, into the class conflict uh, with our consciousness in North America right now, we have to add race into that and uh, be fascinating to see a a race aware uh, production with people of color uh, in various roles in Sweeney Todd Mm -hmm. um, would be fascinating to see. What a show. What a conversation. Oh my God. Arwen, it's so fun to talk with you about Sweeney Todd. I'm I'm so glad to learn how deep your obsession with the show goes. It makes me very happy. Oh man. Yeah. Do you have it a, was do you funny have a when fa- I started re-listening to it. I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. I was gonna say, do you have a favorite song or moment? Like what's your Oh man, I think it's I think it's the epiphany. Like I know that okay. that's a really gross thing to, to have no, as a favorite when you're like fifteen years brilliant. old, but it's just it's so brilliant in every so way. I think it, it's just the full um it's like the fullness of humanity. You see mm-hmm. so much of yourself in it, which is really cool. Yeah. And uh I don't know. There's just something about it. It's genius. And it's yeah. epiphany. Peter- it is an epiphany. Right. Yeah. And and also, uh, you know, epiphany will forever be linked, at least uh, in uh, in our consciousness, with January 6th, uh, 2021, um, yeah. and the storming of the Capitol and the evil that just erupted out of all that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. My favorite is Joanna, of course, I just because it's such... An extraordinary, like if there is an operatic moment, it seems to me that song that's, and what about you, Nathan, as a way to kind of sum up? I love Joanna because I because I sang it, but actually the moment that gives me chills is that first iteration. You know, it's like da 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 da, da and and it's <sighs> swing your razor wide. When the chorus breaks out in that harmonization, they're screaming oh. at the top of their lungs. It gives me a chill every time. I, I watched it last night, and e- like it never fails to like send a chill all the way up my spine. It's the most satisfying musical moment, I think, in that whole thing. That first time you hear the DSRA, and it's like, oh, here we go. Swing your razor wide, Sweeney. It's just like, oh, it just brings me a it's, I don't know, it's a weird moment to thrill to but it does yeah. I, I used to walk around the garden like when I was like out with my dad you know with with garden swing your razor totally. sing it to him. yeah it's 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 also a total earworm I'm probably now gonna have that in oh, my yeah. head all day long I love the Ballad of Sweeney I was so sad when they cut the Ballad of Sweeney Todd from the film I understand why they did it Sondheim yeah. did it it was a it Insane. was the right choice but the Ballad of Sweeney Todd I think is just it's, magnificent yeah. I love that number I'm getting chills just hearing you talk about it I mean all I have yeah. to do is think about it and it's oh, mm-hmm. It's so good. It's so Ooh. good. Stephen oh, Sondheim's great horror show. movie as a yes, musical. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. A cautionary tale. Until next time. Coming soon to theaters near you. Absolutely. <laughs> Bye-bye, guys. Thanks, you guys. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Arwen. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.